if somebody wants to to quit, if somebody wants to break free from porn addiction, what do they do? I would say one of the most important things is finding someone you can be vulnerable with about it and who can hold you accountable. Being vulnerable and that alone lets go of so much shame because so many people are struggling with this in isolation and they're afraid to tell anyone. I remember for myself, from the moment I realized I had that porn addiction when I was you know, in my early 20s to the day where I could tell a single person without freaking out was six years. I, even though I was free from it for, you know, in my early 20s, I couldn't mention that I had struggled with porn at all because I was so ashamed. And slowly over time, after talking about it with more and more people, now I can, you know, come on a podcast and tell the whole world. Um, but just the ability to tell a single person and realize you're not a monster is a huge huge weight off of people's shoulders because hearing other people talk about it and not be ashamed of it is also helpful. Today we bring you a second episode with our guest Jeremy Lipkowitz. In our first conversation with him, we were struck by every piece of our conversation, not just for his authenticity, his vulnerability, but also his eloquence. And because it truly was the culmination of everything we are trying to do here in the third place. We are completely honored to bring Jeremy on for a second episode on the topic of porn addiction. In this episode, we discover the tangible tools in dealing with addiction of any kind and how mindfulness plays such a powerful role in recovery. Jeremy, thank you again for joining us on The Third Place. We welcome you to explore the third place with us. It is an invitation to the gray space, a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, challenging empowering, and, and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. Jeremy, when we think about pornography addiction, we do, or at least I do tend to think about it being primarily a problem that men face. But I know that there's more and more women that are also struggling with pornography addiction. Are there differences between the approaches for men as they work and wrestle with their addiction and how that is similar or different to the way women might approach addictive tendencies in pornography? In terms of the kind of the difference between male and female tendencies for porn addiction, I should start by saying I'm not an expert in this. Um, and so a, a lot of my understanding here is more anecdotal from when I give workshops or presentations and I, and I do talk to women who struggle with it. Um, what we know is that it does affect both men and women. Uh, and it does seem to be either growing in women or just being more reported in women than it used to be. My sense is that it is it does still affect more men than women, and part of that is probably due to differences in kind of um, 
sexual drive uh, in in kind of the gender differences or, or sex differences. So yeah, it's not something I focus on too much because for me, the way to heal from it is the same regardless of whether you're a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the most part. But it does also yeah. touch on just the hormonal makeup, right? Just the what comes of uh, the existence of testosterone in the body. And sometimes I think that even when we can go back to some of those like fact-based or non-emotionally charged things like, oh, testosterone re- represents in this way, progesterone pre- represents in this way, it can take a little bit of that uh, that shame, I think, off of it too. I'm that's what I would guess. And then it also could be a sign of maybe literally a hormonal imbalance too that um, mm. could be powerful. So I don't know, just so much that I'm thinking about, but I, I, I do like bringing some of that biological foundation yeah. to, to the conversation because it's like, what if we also thought of it in that way and it didn't have to be that something's necessarily wrong? Well, so there's a couple of things. So many juicy apples. Um, one thing I would say is like to to provide some some nuance around that language is like it doesn't even have to be a hormonal imbalance. But as you know, we were all talking about earlier to to normalize sexuality and to understand that like having strong sexual urges, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, and it's not necessarily a state of being imbalanced. It's what you do with that. And then you know, what habits are you forming based off of that? What neural pathways are you solidifying with those sexual urges? Um, the other thing, kind of getting back to your point around, around testosterone, there's one thing, this little story that I listened to on a podcast maybe a decade ago or eight years ago, and it has stuck with me. And I forget what podcast it comes from, but it was the story of a, a, a trans man, so formerly a woman who ended up taking hormones to become a man. And I remember just him telling the story of after he transitioned and had all this testosterone and he was on the subway and it was his first time experiencing this biological lust to this degree where he couldn't really control himself. And, you know, before when when he was a woman, it was like, okay, he didn't have those feelings. And just with that changing in testosterone, that experience of lust was so overwhelming. Um, and so for me, that really does point out that there there are biological differences going on. Uh, and, and testosterone does play, you know, a strong role in that. Yeah, one of the things that came up for me when Mary was talking about women... Um and porn is obviously with men and porn addiction, they may or may not have that partner. And I think one thing that you also just brought up too is, you know, there's this biological and it's like, how do we remove the emotion so that we can actually talk through what's going on? But because sex is so emotionally connected, um, I would imagine that it's difficult to talk through in a partnership relationship just because it can feel so personal and feel so emotional. And, um, and you know, how does pornography affect the partner and the view of sex? And, and really the core of the question that I'm trying to get to is if you're in a relationship where your partner does have a porn addiction, how can you be supportive of working through that and trying your best to remove 
at least some of the emotion, because I'm sure all of it can't be removed. Mm. That's a great question. If, you know, I think it's so dependent on the couple. I think for some, for ease of kind of talking about it, let's just say we're talking about a, a man with a porn addiction with a woman who doesn't have it, but it could easily be the other way. But, um, you know, like some women in that context wouldn't be okay with their their partner watching porn, and that's fine for them to have that stance. And some women would be fine with their partner watching porn. Um, and it's just more about having healthy conversations about when is it appropriate and how much is appropriate and um, maybe do they use it together or is it okay to use solo. So I think just having healthy conversations with your partner uh, and having you know, coming to it with your own self-awareness of what you're willing to accept and what you're not willing to accept. Uh, and I don't think there's any right or wrong there. It's more of a personal comfort level. Um, and, and, you know, some couples will actually use it together in a, a way that's healthy and supportive for their relationship. So it, it really just depends on the on the couple. If Let's say you're taking the example of... Um, you know, a partner who is okay with their partner watching it, but wants them to slowly ease off of it, you know, doesn't want it to be a long-term thing, but is not judgmental in the short term. Yeah, it's such a tough question because with all addictions, if you don't have your own personal motivation to break free from the habit, there's really not much anyone else can do. Yeah. And so, you know, the person has to have their own understanding that they want to change. I think that the truth that, I don't know, I really heard, though, is like if a partner has a porn addiction and you're you're the one who does not, it's or it sounds like it's probably not about you and your sexuality as much as it is this addictive behavior that has it's outside of your relationship. Um, but I mean, even speaking to, you know, what motivates you for me, one of the things that motivates me to not go down a pornography road is so many that are in the porn industry are women who are being abused, you know, like that there's just a reality of the ethics behind young girls that, you know, it's an extremely patriarchal system. A lot of my work and even the work of the third place is about women empowerment. You can't be about women empowerment and wrestle with this, um, this industry, which belittles uh, so many women and the views of women. So like, that's the thing that I cling to that creates my boundary, but I had to find that for a while. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you said first is so important understanding if your partner has a porn addiction, you know, it's most likely it has nothing to do with you. You know, it's not that you're not good enough or not attractive enough. Like it's a, it's a disease of the mind that affects people and it has nothing to do with, with the partner. And yeah, I mean, the that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down is the ethical, you know, problems if with the porn industry on multiple levels. I mean, there are the ethical questions around, you know, the, the actresses that are doing it willingly, but don't realize kind of how harmful it is or abusive it is. And so it seems like a good idea, but then it's just a messed up system for them in the long run. And then there's also the the uglier question of, you know, sex trafficking. And there's so much, 
they're just so intermingled you can't really disentangle them and say oh no i only watch you know stuff that is free from sex trafficking because the truth is you just don't know you never know if somebody is doing it of their own free will or if they're you know enslaved in some way um yeah there's so many ethical issues with it it's and then the another layer is that kind of thing you touched on also is what are the message we're sending to young boys and girls around what is healthy sexuality and what is expected i was just gonna ask about that because there's this this hbo series called euphoria that i loved that is um representative of sort of this generation's high school experience in a very very extreme way but it's like somewhat even traumatizing for me to watch having a child and seeing how um how it's represented and, and obviously the influence of technology but i remember vividly the first episode shows um like a montage of all different clips from different porns and different porn clips that have showed um or sort of planted the seed of what these young adults should anticipate in the experience of sex and on many occasions it's it's very um, extreme very abusive um, lacking a lot of the sensuality that um, could exist and I'm just sitting here and thinking like you know in your experience being that it was the the 90s that you were getting um, these messages like how did that present for you yeah well, you know, calling it um, extreme and abusive and lacking in sensuality is possibly the understatement of the century. <laughs> because when you look at like some of the stuff on there, it's grotesque and just, you know, it, you know it's astonishingly grotesque. And the horrible part about it is that the way that the brain works in terms of arousal and, and the kind of the arousal system is that you get you get kind of um more desensitized desensitized yeah exactly so basically like you need more and more extreme things to to get you to around yeah to sort of shock um, the system even more right exactly yeah and so people end up getting into these more extreme things not because they're actually into those things to start with but because they're just looking for that next kind of more extreme hit and so over time, you know, people can actually get into these really horrible things. And, you know, you see really horrible things, you know, bestiality and child porn and incest and rape porn and, you know, all these really, really awful things. And yeah, it's just it's such a it, it's kind of a, a mind fuck, <laughs> like what to do about it, especially for like kids in high school that just aren't having these conversations. And nobody's really touching on these issues. I mean, there are like conversations like this and, you know, a couple others. But for the most part, it's a problem that's that's getting worse. And people are still not kind of really addressing it. I, I do think you're you're right. And it sounds like your work is heading in this direction where it's just so critical to talk about it. I remember watching a documentary um, that Michael Moore produced he was in Europe, and so he was comparing the the differences between what sex ed over there looked like and what sex ed over here looked like. And 
so many of the sex ed over here that teaches abstinence, 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 without talking about, you know, you just want to avoid this. They are the areas in the country that have the highest rates for teenage pregnancies mm. versus the classroom that he observed in Europe that was talking about, um, you know, sex education. It was like, hey, here's here's this thing and it's it was much more of the sensual approach and it was like you want to save this for it wasn't saved till marriage as much as it was this is something that's really special for your body and the pregnancy rates were way down because there was it was almost infusing into this is so special this is why we're talking about it so so i do think talking about it does seem to be just so critically important yeah I mean, in r relation to the porn epidemic, I don't know if there's any one thing that will be more beneficial than just having more conversations about it, because I think that's the one thing that's lacking. Right. The, I mean, one of the themes that just is like screaming at me right now is just that it's um, that I feel like we're witnessing in our political scene and in our division um, here in the States and in general is the dehumanizing factor. And, and like, that's what I heard you say when you were really talking about sort of the texture behind um, watching these different versions of porn was just, it was like, it becomes dehumanizing. And we, I guess what the word would be maybe the materializing of people or the materialistic version of that. 100%. I mean, one, there's this one study that stands out for me that showed that when people are viewing porn, the areas of their brain that are activated are not the areas of the brain that are associated with viewing people It's the areas of the brain associated with viewing objects. Objectification. So that's right. That was the word. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And in my own experience, like when I was in the depths of that kind of addictive behavior, I was seeing women as like, objects mm. it was just i would you know that in that story i told of walking down the street and seeing the butt in front of me i just had tunnel vision for that the butt there was no kind of deeper person there that i wanted to get to know it was just how can i have that mm -hmm. and experience that you know mm -hmm. i mean something so current is the new britney spears documentary that has just come out on youtube that that to me was just as uh not depressing so much as like shocking, but also hope giving because the experience that she went through, which was also in the nineties and early two thousands was so objectifying. And I was able to watch and witness that and realize that, um, we, we have made some progress like that gave me some hope, um, that it, just like what you were saying, like when you're progressive or you're like you don't even know you're moving towards the path of addiction when you're in it right and it's only when you can have a little bit of a like removed perspective or retrospect that you see wow here's the progress that I've made and in your own recovery I mean you very much have this like flash of of insight that led you down this path to happiness and recovery and did that look like to you the total um, removal of porn? I mean, were you were you still exercising it or not? And like, what was the succession there? I've been curious to sort of come back to that as well. And just to build on that, I think the question I have is if if you find yourself 
with a porn addiction, where do you go? What what are the first steps out? Yeah. So those are two questions for David. me. Like, <laughs> I could take this in. <laughs> Sorry. No, they're both great questions and I don't want to lose them because it's actually, it's a, a rabbit hole that we almost went down earlier and I wanted to go down it mm-hmm. and we kind of lost it, which is this question of, you know, what level of porn can be healthy? Like, can can using porn be healthy for you? Or is it like you just should stop using it altogether? Um, and it's a, it's a great conversation. You know, for me, I'm not uh, religious. And so there's no sin attached to it. So I have nothing wrong with porn as an idea. Um, the way I view it, it's a lot like uh, really, really bad junk food. You know, sometimes I still crave like Jack in the Box, you know, because I was addicted to that in high school. And so is it the end of the world if you have fast food once a year? No. But is it um, healthy to have it every night? Definitely not. So that's kind of my viewpoint on porn now. This is removing the ethical issues from it. Um, There are sources of ethical porn and places where you can find ethical porn. So for me, the way I view it now is... You know, if you want to watch it once a month or once every couple months, you know, you you watch some like there's it's probably not help. It's not like improving your life, but it's not going to ruin your life in the same way. Junk food like probably isn't going to extend your lifespan, but it's probably not, you know, one hamburger is not going to kill you. That being said, when it comes to recovery from it, there's a couple different approaches and I don't think there's a a one size fits all approach for everyone. For me, it was much healthier to have a clean break, at least in the beginning. When I did that break, I went for a few years without touching it. And that was really beneficial for me. I do think it's possible, you know, for some other people to have a, a slower approach where it's more phasing it out. Because when it comes down to it, the important thing is not necessarily the getting rid of porn. The important thing is recovering your life on a deeper level. So removing the deeper underlying trauma or needs that caused the addiction in the first place. Because in the absence of dealing with that, no amount of recovery is going to kind of stick, right? So, um, you know, for some people who quit uh, like smoking, for example, it helps to say, you don't need to stop smoking, but instead develop a mindful curiosity on a deep level about every time you smoke. And so there's the work of this really great researcher, his name is Judson Brewer, who does a lot of work in addiction and and mindfulness. And his method is a lot about bringing more attention and mindfulness to your addiction and not shaming any aspect of it, not even trying to stop it, but just bringing that deep level of mindfulness to how you feel when you're actually doing it. And so, for example, with smoking, if you are mindful, these people started to notice like, wow, this tastes awful. Why am I doing this to my body? And so you can do similar things with mindfulness. For me, though, and for many people I work with, it does help to have some distance from it, you know, just to allow yourself to breathe for a few months. Um, Also, one other topic, you know, in the world of habit formation and addiction, uh, something I like to talk about is that what we call stimulus control is much more important than self-control. Stimulus control, meaning the things you're surrounding yourself with and the stimuli you're putting in front of your face 
is going to impact your ability to, you know, whether or not you then relapse and indulge in something versus stay clean. So let's say you're trying to give up eating junk food. If you always walk by the Dunkin' Donuts every day on your way to work, it's going to be very hard to stay free from donuts. But if you choose a different route to work, you know, and you don't, you don't put that in front of your face, um, it's much easier. And so just that stimulus control is really important. Uh, self-control, you know, learning how to cultivate self-management and, and all these things is important as yeah, well. Yeah, but that's a, that to me feels like a more uh, achievable goal is the, the change of stimulus rather than the change of self, right? And that that evolution of self is like, that's a lot of work. And I think that that tends to be out of reach if you're not able to take a sabbatical or not able to access the therapy that you need or access the peer group that supports that decision. And I've never heard it said like that, the stimulus versus self-control. And I, I like that because it's also like continually um, removing some of that shame, removing some of that responsibility that, that sometimes I think that responsibility can just bog us down to the point of not able to even you know, get a taste of what recovery could be like, because it's so much on our shoulders. And, you know, you hear this all the time. Like, I just don't go to the liquor store. I just don't, I don't get the junk food at the grocery store or whatever. I'm going to remove those elements um, because then I can maintain maybe through that self, that stimulus control, it feels like self-control because then you don't have that stimulus. So you're like, you know what, then you start to gain more of that habit forming that gives you the power or the um, capacity feel like you have a little bit of control of something that I think oftentimes feels so controlless. Yeah. And I think it's important that like you need both in the long run. If you just do stimulus control and you never develop the self-control, there's going to be instances where it just pops into your life somehow. And so you need to, you know, that stimulus control is like, it gives you the, like a runway so that you can launch your recovery. It gives you that, you know, that space that you need to breathe. Um, but developing, you know, self-control and self-mastery and all those things is important as well. I, I would say, you know, you kind of ask the question, if somebody wants to to quit, if somebody wants to break free from porn addiction, what do they do? I would say one of the most important things is finding someone you can be vulnerable with about it and who can hold you accountable. Um, both of those, you know, they're related, they are separate. So like being vulnerable and that alone lets go of so much shame because so many people are struggling with this in isolation and they're afraid to tell anyone. I remember for myself, from the moment I realized I had that porn addiction when I was, you know, in my early twenties to the day where I could tell a single person without freaking out was six years. I, even though I was free from it for, you know, in my early 20s, I couldn't mention that I had struggled with porn at all because I was so ashamed. And slowly over time, after talking about it with more and more people, now I can, you know, come on a podcast and tell the whole world. Um, but just the ability to tell a single person and realize you're not a monster is a huge huge weight off of people's shoulders and it's one of the reasons that I do things like this is because hearing other people talk about it and not be ashamed of it is also helpful 
So for people out there who are listening to this, who are struggling in silence, hopefully, you know, they're hearing me and they realize, oh, okay, other people, you know, have this issue too. I'm not alone. And this is what self-compassion is, is understanding that common humanity, understanding, oh, I'm not alone in this. I'm not, you know, a perverted monster because I watch porn. And so finding someone you can be vulnerable with and talk to, that alone is going to probably be better than anything else you could do, just starting to open up about it. Then the second thing is getting accountability. You know, doing this path of recovery for this is really tough, but finding someone who can actually hold you accountable, who you can check in with and say, hey, I need help or, you know, I'm struggling or anything like that. And so, you know, coaches or therapists or uh, friends sometimes work, but friends are usually a little too lenient uh, and they just kind of like, ah, don't worry about it. So um, accountability is also important. And then the final thing is really discovering your motivation. Why do you want to break free from porn? You know, for me, it was the realization, I don't want to end up a perverted 70-year-old man. And I also want to live life where I feel happy. And those two burning desires were really helpful for me. I just think that that is like such a perfect way to um, summarize our whole conversation. And something I want to like bring to light in, in my own recovery from an eating disorder, because I feel like there's just, you know, this, some similar tendencies with that addiction as well is that, um, one practice that was really powerful was understanding just the the passion that comes from an addictive personality. And it's so obvious for me sitting here having this conversation with you and with David to see how it wasn't about suppressing the passion that lives naturally within you, but that you were able to transfer that passion now into this work that is productive and satisfying those yearning desires that you had. And it's really beautiful to have witnessed. And I'm really grateful to have had you on and had such a vulnerable conversation and and totally amazed at your ability to be so vulnerable and so well-spoken on it. Well, it's a, it really lights me up to be here talking about this. Um, You know, I, I used to feel so much anxiety about going public about my porn addiction stuff and now it's just kind of oh yeah that was something I I dealt with yeah Um, but but it really it's such a big issue for so many people that I feel a a deep sense of meaning coming on if I can make some difference so yeah when I think that um, the language that you're not alone you know so many of the journeys that we've uh, been unpacking as we've gone through this podcast on the different topics I think that that's one of the common themes is that you thankfully are able to be a guide for so many other people you know you've experienced something you've been able to see yourself through to the other side and of course there's lots of pain and hurt in that journey but those pains and hurts are the thing that are able to be that source of hope for so many other people. And so I thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for doing the hard work and, you know, for taking the backpacking trip that now 
I feel like I don't have to take because you've able, you're able to be that guide for me and share that experience, even though it's not in the exact same path. And I think that that's just very helpful for so many people. So thank you. Yeah. So where can people find the work that you're doing now if they want to dive a little bit deeper? Yeah, you can go to my website, uh, jeremylipkowitz.com. Uh, I am on and off Instagram. Uh, sometimes I go on digital detoxes. At the moment, I'm on it, but uh, it's not a sure bet that I'll be on it forever. So just check out my website. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thanks. Be well. Third Place Podcast is produced by Podcast Publishing House. If you like what you're hearing, follow us and subscribe at all of your favorite platforms, Apple, Spotify. Also check out the episodes on our website, thirdplacepodcast.com for additional resources and transcriptions of our episodes. The Third Place is all about continuing the conversation. So make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Third Place Podcast. There you can check out our weekly co-host Happy Hours on IGTV. And if you like what you're hearing and want to continue to support our work, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash third place podcast.